If you will, take your Bibles and open to the uh, 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians and hold your finger there. We will refer to that in just a moment. But I wanted to uh, start this morning by just talking a little bit about the Lord's Supper and how it is viewed. And the Lord's Supper um, and how it should not be viewed. It should not really be viewed as an afterthought or just tacked on to something at the end of our service. Even though today I did move it to the end of our service. But uh, we are hopefully going to give it uh, some really great presence here this morning. Uh, We're going to give it its proper due and respect that the Word of God teaches that it should have. You and I need to approach the Lord's Supper uh, with our minds and our hearts fixed on it, contemplating it. It is intended to be an instrument of grace uh, that that God uses in our hearts and in our minds. The Lord's Supper is intended to focus our attention entirely on Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross. It is intended to be a a glorious and a reverent moment when we come to the table to receive the Lord's Supper. Scripture leaves no doubt as to the purpose of the Lord's Supper, and the one who instituted it has stated it very definitely in, in chapter 22 of Luke says, this do in remembrance of me. And it is when we study this passage we're going to read in a moment and see the special revelation given by the Apostle Paul, by the Lord, that we learn in addition to remembering his person, there are three more purposes uh, that Christ had in mind. And namely, that is the discernment of his body, the proclamation of his death, and the anticipation of his return. All four of these purposes are found in the primary text of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. So if you will, read that with me this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Paul is addressing the believers in Corinth, and he says, when you come together, It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, for which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the cup and drink of, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if, we, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, 
When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then he says about the other things, I will give direction when I come. See, in this passage, Paul is rebuking the believers in Corinth, saying that the church is, is coming together for a service and they're doing more damage than they're doing good. He denounced them for turning this ordinance into just sort of a common meal. Now, we have to understand the context and see what is going on here in the first century setting there in Corinth. They would meet together. They had a church service every day, and then they would have a fellowship meal, sort of a, sort of a love feast at the end of their service in which everyone would eat together. And they'd have their service, and at the end of the religious portion of the service, then they would observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, some of them had plenty to eat, and they would bring food, and, and they would have plenty, and some of them didn't. And so there were some class distinctions going on here. There were some hard feelings. Some of them were even coming in observance of the Lord's Supper, they were coming drunk. And so they had turned this special ordinance into just a common meal. And the failure to distinguish between their fellowship supper and the Lord's Supper had resulted in a confusion within the assembly of those believers. And as a result of their disorderly conduct and their failure to appreciate what was really meant by the Lord's Supper, many of them were weak and sickly, and some of them had actually died. And so Paul now proceeded to tell them just exactly what the Lord's Supper was and what the Lord's purpose was in instituting it. So they would be spiritually aware, spiritually mature uh, in the observance of it in the future. And so let's consider this morning the fourfold purposes of the Lord's Supper. The remembrance of his person, the discerning of his body, the proclamation of his death, and the anticipation of his return. So number one, the remembrance of his person. Two times in this passage, Jesus repeats those words, this do in remembrance of me, showing his heart's desire for our blessed Lord to be remembered by his redeemed people. And as the creator of, of man, Jesus must have known that uh, we have a short memory and that we would have certain things that we would need to be reminded of. And so as he looked ahead, as he looked into the ages to come, he saw how much uh, we would need this constant remembrance of himself in taking the bread and drinking the cup. And in view of this, he instituted this simple ordinance that says, this do in remembrance of me. And from that time on, companies of believers, both large and small gatherings, have gathered together in his name to, and, uh, to observe and carry out the request of our Lord by observing the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper is not a time necessarily to preach the gospel to the unsaved. It's not necessarily a time to hear uh, an exposition of scripture from a gifted preacher. It is not a time to listen to the beautiful voices of a well-trained choir or to have uh, the need of foreign missions um, brought before us or even engage in the holy act of intercession of prayer on behalf of others. All these are great things and they're all well and good in their place, but this is not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. The sole purpose of the Lord's Supper is to promote, to provide an opportunity for the believer to concentrate their minds and attentions and their heart's affection on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to the exclusion of all else. 
to provide an opportunity for the believer to concentrate their mind's attention and their heart's affection on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes believers will ask, sometimes I've been asked, you know, well, what, what should be my thoughts during the Lord's Supper? What are things we should or could focus on while we are participating in the Lord's Supper? How can I best direct these thoughts to glorify the Lord during this time? And as I view and receive the cup and the bread, what should I remember? Well, here's a list of things that may help you to remember uh, our Lord Jesus Christ as you take the Lord's Supper. The first one is remember his name. In Scripture, God's name uh, combines to reveal his character. All of his names combine to reveal his character. And if we concentrate on these names of the Lord, it is bound to produce worship within our hearts. Uh, Psalms 20 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Isaiah 42 says, he declares, I am Jehovah, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. Matthew 1, uh, the birth of Christ says, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Acts 2 says, think of him as the anointed one of God who so perfectly translated the will of his father in terms of a life of perfect obedience to his will, even unto death. Think of him as Lord, the one whom God has highly exalted and given a name that is above every name. That's Philippians 2. And then the wonderful passage of Isaiah we use each Christmas, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Song of Solomon says his name is an ointment poured forth. And then, of course, in the book of John, we think of him as the Word. And just as our thoughts are expressed to others by means of words, so Christ, as the living Word, has revealed God in all the glory of his being and in the full display of all of his divine attributes. So as we concentrate on his names, uh, they reveal to us his infinite worth and his holiness, his majesty and glory, as we just heard from the choir this morning. And that brings us to say, true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Number two, remember his works. Think about the marvelous works of creation, all the things that were created by the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalms 33 says, the vast universe came into existence at his command. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Genesis 2 talks of the great creator. He created man in his own image. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and thus caused him to be a living soul. But all those marvelous works fade in comparison to the mighty work of redemption, which he accomplished at the ultimate cost of the sacrifice of himself. It is this work that he came to do, lived to accomplish, and died to consummate. So the believer, as he remembers these marvelous works, now can, can truly, uh, thankfully exclaim, For thou, O Lord, hath made me glad by what they have done. I will sing for joy at the works of thy hands. Number three, we can remember his love. The evident proof of his love is seen in the symbols on the Lord's table, in the cup and in the bread, his body broken and his blood shed for us. 
And as a believer contemplates on that type of love, he has to come to a deep appreciation of Jesus' infinite love and peace. The depths of the love of Christ will make us gladly respond, I love him because he first loved me. And we can remember many things about his love, but here a scripture assures us that his love is immeasurable. It is incomprehensible. It is eternal. It is inseparable. It is irrefutable, unchangeable, and unquenchable. Along as we, of course, as we observe the Lord's Supper, we cannot help but to remember his affliction. During the Lord's Supper, uh, we turn our minds to the awful suffering and the affliction that Christ suffered on the cross, all for our salvation. And when we set our minds on the affliction of Christ, um, it's, it's like the British author Alfred P. Gibbs says, it is almost as if he comes to us saying, remember that I became the man of sorrows and became acquainted with grief. Remember that I suffered the contradiction of sins. Uh, sinners against myself and endured the cross and despised the shame. Remember that all the floodgates of the infinite judgment of God rolled over my spotless soul as I hung upon the cross bearing all your sins in my body. Remember I was forsaken of God in that lonely, dark, mysterious hour and that I suffered to the bitter end. Remember that I did it all for you, that you might have your sins forgiven that you might be at peace with God and blessed with all the spiritual blessings you now enjoy. Therefore, remember my affliction and my misery. Number five, we remember his exaltation. At the Lord's Supper, we do not only meet to remember the one who, who suffered and bled and died, but we also remember the one who rose victoriously and now lives the power of an endless life. By faith, we see him glorified at the right hand of God the Father. By faith, we see him as our great high priest who lives forever to make intercession for us. And with the Apostle Paul, we can triumphantly exclaim, remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead according to my gospel. We also remember him as the one whom God called, who, who God exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then we remember the words of the psalmist, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness and thus fulfill the purposes for which he saved us by his grace. Number six, we remember his mercies. Paul exhorted the Ephesians to remember the kindness and the love of God which is shown to them in their salvation. Ephesians 2 says, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You know, it is a good thing for us to remember the dark days of our unsaved past before Christ came into our lives and to contrast it with the bright present 
of our blessed relationship with Christ now. And to remember that it is all due by the amazing love and the sovereign grace of God. It was revealed to us as a gift through his dear son. So we remember his name. We remember his works, his love, his affliction, his exaltation, and his mercies. <clears throat> and lastly, we remember his words. As we sit in his presence at the Lord's Supper, we would do well to remember his words. Colossians 3 says, we are exhorted to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Now, of course, we have to read the Word of God. We have to read our, and study our scriptures and store them in our minds and in our hearts. And we can call to mind the words of our Savior and meditate on them, and as the disciples did on the road to Emmaus. Uh, then their hearts will be full, and He will commune with us along our way as well. As you think of His words as, grac as a gracious invitation, assuring love, and of a satisfying consolation, and of glorious anticipation of his second coming. We can exclaim with the prophet Jeremiah, thy words were found and I ate them. Thy words became for me a joy and a delight in my heart. For I have been called by thy name, O Lord of hosts. I love that scripture, probably because it has something to do with eating. But Jeremiah gives us a great example there to say, I, the, the words I found, and I, and I ate them, I consumed them, I chewed on them, I meditated on them. Just like a fine meal, when you, when you go somewhere and you enjoy a, a really fine meal, you take your time and you just eat it and you just absorb it and you enjoy it. And that's what we're to do with the Word of God. We are to, to, to bring it in and to meditate on it and to enjoy it and to, to feed on it and to, to contemplate the Word of God. The second purpose that we talked about was discerning the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians uh, that uh, chapter 11 passage, verse 29 says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So in what ways do the believers discern the Lord's body as he takes the Lord's Supper? What did our Lord mean to convey in his disciples by these words, this is my body, this is my blood? Did he mean that his words should be taken literally? Or were they to understand that he spoke of them in a figurative language? Do Christians, as they take the bread and the cup, do they actually eat the literal body of Christ and drink his blood? Or do they only eat and drink that which symbolizes the body and the blood of Christ? Well, there are many, many views on the Lord's Supper from, from other denominations, and we'll not get into those today. But some do believe that the bread and the wine are literally changed into the body and blood of Christ. Some believe that the bread and the wine contain the body, but they're not physically there. But we as Baptists and we as Protestants, and especially here at uh, Christ Baptist, we believe that this is a memorial to the life of Christ. It is a symbol of Christ's body and his blood. And there's really only one scriptural and, and, and sane answer to that question. Uh, as we take the bread and the cup, as we discern the body of Christ in a spiritual, scriptural manner, it is as a memorial. We realize that the bread 
and the cup. They're only divine appointed emblems or, or symbols or pictures that illustrate the reality of the sacrifice of the blood and body of Christ. From the scriptures, we learn that this body was prepared in incarnation. It was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and it was born of a virgin. It is sinlessly perfect, holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. It is absolute deity and perfect humanity combined in this blessed person. His body was offered as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. In his death on the cross, he made provision for the redemption of men from sin. It was raised in triumph from the grave and handled in the resurrection. He will return in power and glory to judge the world and consummate his redemptive mission. Now, glorious in the power of an endless life, he sits at the right hand of the, of the majesty on high. So in other words, the true believer knows that there is no saving virtue whatsoever in the bread and the juice. Their value lies only in enabling us to spiritually convey the sacrifice of Christ. The Baptist faith and message is one of our, our statements of faith, and it states this, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience, whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate His second coming. So as the believer takes the bread, he should say, Lord Jesus, I take this bread as a symbol of thy body in which you bore my sins, taking my sins upon yourself and dying in my place. In humble obedience to your request, I eat this bread in remembrance of you. And as he takes the cup, he should say, Lord Jesus, this is a symbol of your precious blood which was shed for my redemption. I take it as from yourself in fond and grateful remembrance of you. And in this way, the believer fulfills the purpose that the Lord had in instituting this supper. This do in remembrance of me. The third purpose of the Lord's Supper is the proclamation of the Lord's death. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word proclaim, uh, some of your versions may say show, but the word proclaim is uh, the same word in the original language as translated into preach. This word is used throughout the book of Acts, in 1 Corinthians, in Philippians, and in Colossians. And at the Lord's Supper, the great central fact of the gospel, the death of Jesus Christ, is proclaimed, is preached. In other words, Christians do not only come together to remember the Lord's death, but they come together to proclaim it, to preach it. Well, who do we preach this to? Well, a believer proclaims it to himself. Every time the believer takes and partakes in the bread and the cup, he reminds himself that if it were not for the death of Christ on the cross on his behalf, he would still be in sin, completely lost, guilty, and hopeless. He realizes that by Christ's death, he satisfied every claim of a holy law and every demand of a holy God. And each time a believer takes the Lord's Supper, they are, they're brought back to that great fundamental truth of the gospel, the substitutionary sacrifice of the Son of God 
on their behalf. That way, Calvary is always fresh on our minds. Another way is the believer proclaims it to the world. Preaching is the God-ordained means of making known the truth of the gospel. So the Lord's Supper proclaims to the world and any unsaved person who may be present at the supper, it proclaims the greatest event in the history of the universe. His death is also a record of the greatest love that was ever shown by God to man and unfortunately the greatest crime ever committed by man against God. The Lord Jesus, by instituting the supper, made certain that in the world that had rejected him and despised him, that there would be a constant reminder of his death. Each person who rejects and despises and neglects Christ as his Savior by this attitude, he takes the sides with those who cried, crucify him 2,000 years ago. But all of those who come to Christ and trust him as their Savior are cleared from that charge and they are declared to be justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The believer announces it uh, in a sense to the principalities and the powers in the holy and the heavenly places. This is a tremendous statement that is found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3 verses 9 and 11. And it says this, and to bring to light or to make known to all men what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. From this we learn that the church here on earth is God's, kind of God's object lesson to those spirit beings that form the principalities and the power in the heavenly places. Those heavenly beings see companies of believers meeting in the name of our Lord and Creator, and they rejoice as they see the wondrous truth of His death proclaimed. These same angelic beings saw Jesus as the babe in Bethlehem, as the carpenter in Nazareth, the tempted man in the wilderness, the lonely man in the garden, the despised man in the judgment hall, the forsaken man of Calvary. They announced his triumphant resurrection, they witnessed his glorious ascension, and now they surround the throne and joyously fulfill his will. What a joy it must be for them as they view thousands upon thousands of believers through the ages proclaiming the Lord's death as they partake of the Lord's Supper. Well, you may ask, well, why the emphasis on proclaiming the Lord's death? The Lord's death is a celebration of His victory over death, hell, and the grave. It is through this death and His resurrection that Christ destroyed Satan. Hebrews 2 says, through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And the fourth purpose is the anticipation of the Lord's coming. The Lord's Supper is a temporary thing. There's, there's a time coming when believers will no longer uh, need the bread nor the cup to remind them of the Lord Jesus. We will be with him. We will behold his face. We will see him face to face. But for right now, for the believer, there is a past element of the, of the supper. There's a present element. 
And there's a future aspect to the Lord's Supper. The past aspect is a commemoration. The Lord's Supper not only allows the believer to look backward to Calvary, to see him crucified, it's a proclamation of what God has already done for us as sinners. He has already provided redemption for our sins. There's also an aspect of being in the present. The present aspect we have is communion with God, a celebration, proclamation, and self-examination. It is to look at the present vital fellowship of believers with the Lord and to look with one another, our relationship with the Lord, our relationship with each other. In our present aspect, it's a look upward to heaven to see him glorified and to look inward as we do our own self-examination before the Lord. But we also have a future aspect and expectation. In the remembrance of Christ in the Lord's Supper, there is not only a looking back to the sacrifice at Calvary and a, and a look at the present fellowship that we enjoy with him, as a, uh, but there's also a forward look in the anticipation of his return. We look forward to the time when he will take us to that home that he has prepared. In the book of John, chapter 14, one of the major books on heaven, it says this, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus has a prepared place for a prepared people. This literal and personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ is the promise to the church as a whole and to every individual believer. So we, as we conclude this message today, the believers at Corinth had failed to realize the purpose of the supper. And this had brought upon them the chastening hand of God. And we also must be very aware of approaching the Lord's Supper in a careless and indifferent manner. We must always realize that we are there at the invitation of the Lord of glory, that Christ himself, although unseen, is present as the host of his own supper. The purpose of the supper is to remember him in a worthy manner. So as we close and before we participate in the Lord's Supper, remember this. The Lord's Supper is a memorial of the broken body and the blood of Jesus. It is a symbol of the sustaining grace of Jesus. It's a prophecy of the return of Jesus. It is a symbolic ordinance, a commemorative ordinance, and a perpetual ordinance. And of this ordinance, Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for thinking of this ordinance, of preparing this ordinance for the ages, for all the future believers. Lord, as we come together and we remember the marvelous atoning work 
that you did for us on the cross. Help us always to remember your suffering on the cross. Help us to remember the agony that you went for, the sins that you took upon your own self for us. Lord, we thank you for the redeeming love that you showed. And Father, today, I pray that we will uh, enjoy the Lord's Supper as we will take that in a moment, that we would look at it in a clear new way and of appreciating everything that you have provided for us. Lord, we are such a thankful people for the work that you did on the cross. Lord, be with us this morning as we prepare our hearts and minds for the Lord's Supper. Amen. And at this time, I will ask our deacons if they will go to the tables. And I will ask you, as you prepare to receive the elements, uh, that you would remember these things that we have talked about this morning. Just a word of instruction, uh, you do not have to be a member here at Christ Baptist Church to uh, enjoy the, the uh, fellowship of the Lord's Supper together with us, but you do need to be a believer in Christ. You do need to be a Christ follower, and if you're not a Christ follower today, we pray that you would come and speak with us about that at the end of the service. Maybe today is the day that you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you make your way to the tables this morning, I want you to consider the things that you have heard. And so at this time, I would ask that you would stand. These on the outside edges, will, sections would go to the outside wall. Your table is in the front. These two center sections will go up the aisle and, and your elements are at the tables behind you. So let us stand and participate in the Lord's Supper.
Scripture tells us that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, that he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction that is found in your word. We thank you for the blessings that we receive from your word. And Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage today that tells us what you were thinking, what your desires were as we remember you and we remember your redemptive work on the cross. Father, be with each one of us today. As we go from this place, this holy ground, as we go out to serve you and to be with you, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.